Welcome to Take It From Us with host Kent Johns. Real people, real voices, real lives. Discussing mental health, addiction and disability in the community. Your weekly window to the real world. Welcome to Take It From Us. Take it from us. Welcome into our program. I hope you're going well. Please tell us how you're doing. You know, sincerely, let us know how you're going. Get to our Facebook page, facebook.com, take it from us. A couple of really interesting people to talk to on the program today. I've had a reasonable week. My daughter turned six years old a few days ago, so we had the big party on Sunday. And when I say big party, it was a big party. It was. When I was a kid, when I was six years old, I might have had four or five mates come over, <laughs> pin the tail on the donkey, pass the parcel. I don't even know if we had enough chairs for musical chairs, but that's how it was. My daughter had 12 friends over, 12. Uh, She calls them her team of girls, and there is enough there for a football team, 12 of them. So by the time you add in a couple of extra stragglers and my son, I think there were 15 kids (laughs) sitting around this really long table um, in our living room. And it was neat. It really was neat, and she couldn't leave anyone out. There's this group of she's got this great group of mates at school, and they've all been going to each other's parties over the last few weeks. I think we've got another five to look forward to. I kid you not, we've got another five birthday parties across the next three weeks, and they're all having to stagger them so they don't conflict with each other. But how? Well, it's kind of neat, really, when you think about it. There's a team of girls, twelve of them. And they're all thick as thieves, so I think that should be encouraged. So we got through the party. She had a great time, and she's, I think, pretty stoked to know that, you know, she's got some great friends that she can look forward to seeing at school each and every day. You can't leave anyone out. You've got to be inclusive with these things, right? The other thing that kind of took my interest was the documentary, the Paddy Gower doco on TV3 last week, Paddy Gower on Booze. I know Patrick, I've known him for a lot of years. You know, once upon a time, I would have been having a few beers with him when we studied together a long, long time ago. But the doco itself, you know, whilst it turned into his own personal story, it did give an insight into the drinking culture in this country and all of the problems that go with that. It was a snapshot into a lot of the issues and the inherent problems that we have here in New Zealand just that we've formed collectively over decades and generations with our relationship with alcohol. It certainly made me think about my own relationship with alcohol. I don't drink as much as I used to, nowhere near. I don't drink spirits anymore. I barely touch any wine, but I do have a few beers. But just watching that has made me think, you know, can I do better? It is the question that I ask myself quite a lot, actually, as, as far as the number of times that I've drink and maybe the number of drinks per sitting. It's, it's, it's certainly I'm a work in progress with that. Can I do better? Later in the program, we'll talk to Claire Robbie from No Beers, Who Cares? Uh, they support those who have made a decision to stop drinking. Really looking forward to having a chat with Claire. She actually featured in the doco last week as well. Uh, but our first guest today is Hamish Keston. Hamish is a mental health advocate who is attempting to cycle the length of New Zealand to raise money for the Mental Health Foundation. Now, for years, Hamish has battled with depression. He now talks to senior business leaders and others about how we might outwardly appear as opposed to what really might be behind the masks that we wear. Outwardly, sometimes it all looks good in life. And behind our eyes, um, we've got the the real story. We know yeah, the I'm truth that yeah. perhaps we're oh, struggling. Yeah. So oh, I'm going really well. It's certainly intriguing. It's so good you to join us on for recovery. Can well, you give us the backstory and where you are at as far as your preparations go? Yeah, sure. So I've actually just, just finished a ride uh, right now. Um, but so, you yeah, know, ride recovery was... Um, um, it was one of those things, one of those brilliant ideas that, that occurred during lockdown when I was trying to work out what to do with myself to, to uh, get through the boredom. And um, 
so obviously I've, I've suffered from depression for a long time um, and it's, a, it's an area close to my heart. And so I decided that I'd, I'd do something stupid um, and ride from um, Cape Rang at a bluff, unsupported, on my own, um, in order to raise money for the Mental Health Foundation. And so I've, I've ha- already had $10,500 of donations and, um, and hoping to get to twenty. and I'll be doing the ride in November this year. But you've had to postpone the ride, is that right? Yeah, so this will be my third attempt. So I trained up to do it um, last November, December, um, but then obviously the... the um, which one was it? That was the Delta, the Delta lockdown, um, the lockdown Auckland, and then... I was going to do it in March, April this year, um, but that's when Omnicron came through and um, I, I actually thought that they would put in place um, regional boundaries and also I didn't want to, I didn't want to get, um, I didn't want to get sick while I was away from home, so, um, so I decided to postpone it again. That, that's a hell of a, a challenge you've set yourself, but you're not a novice though when it comes to cycling, eh? No, no, I've been a cyclist for about 25 years, so I did, I did the Ironman triathlon in Taupo three times, so, so that involved a 180k bike ride. Um, so yeah, I've, um, yeah, I've done a bit of cycling, but I've never done a cycle tour before, so, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that challenge of having to do something day in, day out for, for 25 days kind of thing. And that, that's kind of how long you think it'll take you, 25 days plus. Yeah. Yeah, so um, the goal is um, to do about 100, average 100 k's a day um, and have three rest days. So I have a rest day every seven days um, in, in between kind of thing and I ride for basically uh, between four and six hours per day um, for, for 20, 22 days in total. So you're raising, you're hoping to get to $20,000 raised for the Mental Health mm-hmm. Foundation. What are you hoping they'll do with that money? Where would it be best served? Yeah, um, look, I, I mean, I think they, I, I mean, I chose the Mental Health Foundation because they do a really broad range of work across different different sort of areas of society. Um, but I guess my, there's two areas where I'm, I guess I'm super passionate about. Um, one is um, in terms of equipping our children from an early age, um, so at school around uh strategies um, to, to be mentally healthy. Um, so like what, what John Kerwin Foundation is doing in terms of Mighty, I think is amazing. Um, and then the other area from my personal experience that I'm really passionate about um, and, and looking at actually putting an initiative together is really destigmatizing it in the business environment. Um, because like there's great work being done like by mates in construction and, and the trades industry and things like that, but there's nothing specific for for business people. Like like there's apps and things like that, but the problem is in, in an environment where there's there's politics, it's dog eat dogs, there's, there's backstabbing, seen as a weakness, and and I actually think that's fundamentally wrong um, because you look at people like like Winston Churchill, right? Like he suffered. We'd be in a very different world if it wasn't for a man like Winston Churchill who suffered from mental illness. Um, So we really need to turn that conversation around, in my opinion, and actually recognise that that there's nothing wrong with having a mental illness, and in fact it can make people extraordinary. I know you've referred to your mental illness as the black dog. Tell Tell us more about that and your story. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Winston Churchill kind of thing, which is, and, and he was the, the reference to the black dog. And um, yeah, like it, it's, um, I like that reference because it's about like a dog is a constant companion. Um, and, and that's kind of how I think about my, uh, my in- mental illness now. Like, like I, I was diagnosed 15 years ago um, and it was, only, it was actually only by the encouragement of my my, my wife at the time to go along that I that I went along and and originally I thought that I could beat depression like like I'd beaten like I like I'd done an Ironman and things like that and I thought I could I could beat it and um, and it didn't work um, and, and so that's that's why I now think of it as a companion kind of thing and and it's about having mentally healthy strategies to keep you in a good place. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I went through, I've been through all sorts of ups and downs. Um, I, I, about three years ago, or just, no, just so, 
about four years ago, I had to take a four-month sabbatical from work, and, and luckily I had an amazing employer that, that supported me through that. But then during that time, when I was trying to focus on my mental health, um, I, I actually tried to commit suicide and, and ended up in a hospital as a result. So, um, so now I try and talk about it a lot because I want to normalise it. It's a lot more common than people realise, um, and, and I want it to be okay for people to be able to say that they've got a mental illness and, and not not be thought of as a liability or something like that. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of, that's a little bit of my story. What was the response that you got from your work colleagues when you when you told them yeah. what you'd been through? Yeah, good, good question. Um, it was actually amazing. Like, it was actually really good. So, um, yeah, I, the first day back uh, in my role, I basically booked a meeting room and stood up in front of 130 people and told them that, that, that I have depression, um, that I've tried to commit suicide. I explained what it was like, um, what it looks like from the outside, um, and, and some ways that you can potentially help people, either yourself or, or other people. And um, it, like I, I had no negative comments. People listened respectfully. Um, they were attentive. And I had probably half a dozen or a dozen people come up to me after that or subsequent to that and, and thank you. Uh, and thank me for making for, for having the courage to do that. And mm-hmm. so, so now I post a lot of stuff on um, on LinkedIn, and I talk really openly about it. And, and I'm fortunate with my employer now that that they also 100% have my back, and um, and they don't see me as a liability as a result of having mental illness. And, and I'd like everyone to be able to experience that mental illness not being seen as a liability because it's it's, it's going to be a part of almost everyone's life at some point. Time. So, um, yeah. Well, the, the numbers would would tell you that at least at least one in five, and throughout history, mm. you know, it makes me think, Hamish, that if the doctors and the psychologists and the psychotherapists had all the answers, and if the drugs and the medications were working, how is it that the problem is growing exponentially worse yeah. rather than greatly improving? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I think I think some of it's just an awareness, but. Um, but I think, like, to me, I think of um, mental illness as a lar- it's a systemic of larger societal problems. So, so things like poverty, um, homelessness, um, addiction, um, domestic violence, like like um, molestation, like all those things that happen in society, inequality, and things like that. They all play a factor in, in the mental health of our population. So, so to me, it's a really complex problem to solve, um, but a really critical one at the same time. Tell us about a presentation that you've put together to try and illustrate not only your story, but the wider problem that we've got here in New Zealand. Yeah, no, yeah, thanks for asking about that. Yeah, so I just, yeah, um, I, off the back of doing that presentation to my Fonterra colleagues, um, I've, I've been looking for opportunities to speak at different organisations. So um, I talked to the, the Precinct Property Group, the owners of the Commercial Bay, and, and basically I put together a presentation that sort of explains what it looks like, um, what it feels like, um, what are some of the things that, that organisations can actually practically do to support their, their staff, um, and as well as... Um, some of the statistics, because I mean the statistics are, are, are dreadful. Like over 600 people a year um, commit suicide. 600 people a year, and then you think about how many family members and friends and colleagues that impacts on. Um, and then also, unfortunately, it's it's really high in, in the youth population, and particularly the Maori population. Um, so it's like we're literally losing like the future potential of our people, kind of thing. And um, the government recently um, uh, did a study and found it costs us $12 billion a year and lost productivity and various other things. That's, that's mental illness and addiction. Um, and that it reduces um, your expected lifespan by, I think it was 21 or 25 years. So it's like it's a massive impact. Um, and, and I actually get quite angry that the lack of an action by the, or the lack of it by successive governments um, mm. on it. What what do you think could have changed? What more could have been done? Um, I, I guess one of the things I, I look at the, the approach to COVID, right, and and how like it's been a really focused like it all like energy put into it and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, well, yeah, like six hundred people a year die. 
by their own hand. If you add together the the road place, uh, sorry, um, road fatalities, um, drowning deaths, and workplace fatalities, it's still less than the number of people that commit suicide. So why are we not taking it more seriously? Um, so, I mean, I think there's a lot of great work out there sort of being done by different organisations. I mean, I think we need to take more of a digital approach because, like, there's not enough counsellors, like, for everyone to have counselling and things like that. They're just, it's just physically not going to be enough counsellors for a long time. So, so I think there needs to be investment around the digital side. Um, I, I think another aspect, because I've been through a 12-step program for an addiction, and, and, and one of the most amazing things I got out of that was having a group of people that I could be real with and honest with and talk to. Um, so I, I think somehow as a society, and particularly for men, because we're not very good at it, um, we need to facilitate guys talking to guys about their mental health problems and stuff. And like, and I'll just do a plug. I don't even know these guys, but I came across Lads Without Labels recently. So this initiative, some boys down at um, Canterbury University has started, and they go around, they cook a meal at a flat, and then they sit down with the boys and they have a talk about their feelings. And I think that's awesome. Like, I just think that's such a good idea and such a great initiative. And so I think talking is a lot of it kind of thing. Removing the stigma, um, it's okay to take medication. People take, people take medication for cholesterol and heart disease and things like that. Knee pain. Yeah, yeah, why should there be a stigma associated with, with taking antidepressants? So, so yeah. That's just the top of my head sort of thoughts, but hmm. um, yeah, it's it's like it's like it's a, a an incurable problem or an unsolvable problem as long as we are reluctant to address it. And if if you look at hmm. the way that suicide is reported in the media, hmm. sometimes I'm flummoxed as to why there's a lack of honesty or transparency when if it was say a murder case or an assault yeah. case. The details, we're not spared any of those details, yeah. but it's it's like when it comes to a suicide story that the person's dignity has to be protected because yeah. we're worried about the impact that it will have on our community when yeah. perhaps if we talked about it in a more open forum, maybe that yeah. would be more helpful. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I know there was some, I read about it, there's some agreement between the media and the coroner and stuff about how suicides are reported because they're, they're concerned that, that they will create more suicides. But I, I just, I think that's rubbish. Like, like the fact that 600 people a year are doing it is bad enough. Like, we actually got to talk about it more, not less. Um, mm. and, and we need to equip young children from an early age with the right tech tools and strategies to deal with it. Um, we need to address some of the societal problems that we have that are contributing to it. Um, yeah, mm. it's, but it's like, yeah, I get frustrated because I think it's not a problem that can be solved and solved in one or two or even three election cycles. So I get the sense that the government just doesn't really bother because they're not going to be able to materially move the needle. And so, like, yeah, it, it, yeah, it makes me angry. Yeah, I mean, I had a friend of mine. Um, commit suicide between Christmas and New Year's this year. Um, yeah, a really good mate of mine kind of thing. And I didn't even know he suffered from mental health issues. And, and yeah, it's just... Because, yeah. because he did, hadn't told you? No, no. And he's larger than life. He's always out there. And, like, like yeah, he's just always had energy and stuff mm. like that. And, um, yeah, and I found out secondhand that he'd committed suicide and, and left behind a 14-year-old daughter. And, and we, you talk about the number there being, you know, 600 plus, but in a, you know, a country of four and a half, five million people, most of us know someone over the years who has killed themselves or has a friend of a friend. So it always strikes pretty close to home, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, two degrees, right? Like, yeah, and my, my aunt, I've got a family history, but my aunt committed suicide when she was like late 20s or early 30s. Like, I never met her mm. kind of thing. Um, yeah, so you don't have to go far. And and then the other thing is it's not just... Um, I was looking at the ambulance call-out statistics, right? So Because people were going, oh, well, suicides have gone down over the last year, two years during COVID. 
And yes, they have, right? They're still above 600. They've come down marginally. But if you look at the number of ambulance calls out, call outs for attempted suicides, they've actually doubled over the last three to four years. So there's over, I think it's like 12,500 ambulance calls is what St. John's reported uh, occurred in the last in the last calendar year. And that's just like, so it's, what's that? That's like... It's like 20 times the number of people that successfully commit suicide are trying to commit suicide. So, yeah. It's, it's sobering, whichever way you look at it. Uh, take it from us, we're talking with Hamish Keston, who is a mental health advocate. Hamish, one thing that I found really interesting about your presentation, and I had a look through it and it was, it was really impressive, was when you talk about your Instagram life, versus oh, what, yeah. what you were hiding behind your mask. Can you just elaborate on that for us? Yeah, no, I appreciate you bringing that up because that's, um, yeah, so um, I, I, I think of like we, I use the term like Instagram live or social media sort of persona and that in current society we see a very one-dimensional um, view of people. So it's the Instagram highlights and things like that but that's not that's not real that's not reality you don't know all the stuff that's going on and behind the scenes with people like i consider it like a real honor and a privilege when i know the stuff that's going on with a person like somebody that's willing to be vulnerable to me but like staunch and marcher and whatever we want to look good and and that so so instead of admitting that we're having struggling and having problems we we put up what i call these masks and 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 so you say that you that you're good when you're not, kind of thing, and that creates a massive problem um, because holding like when you're suffering from depression or, or any mental illness, it takes a huge amount of energy to pretend everything's okay, and that's energy that you're then not using to actually invest back into getting better. Um, and and so like when I came out and told people I had depression and I tried to commit suicide. People literally told me they had no idea and they never would have thought in a million years that I suffered from depression because I got so bloody good at keeping that, that facade, that mask up. But that was, that was exhausting. Like, it was, it, yeah, it was almost as hard as dealing with the depression itself, to be honest. And, and that's, why, that's why we need to remove the stigma so that people can, don't have to hold that mask up and then they can spend their energy on actually getting better. Mm. The, the other part of, of that too is, of course, for, for everybody else who is constantly comparing themselves mm. to those people who appear to be successful and then reflecting back and thinking, man, why am I not as good as him? Why aren't I not as successful yeah. as she is? Yeah. And that's yeah. harmful as well. Because you're so right, Absolutely. very few people are posting about a rubbish day that they've had or the fact that they're yeah. really, really sad and they're grieving and they need to reach out for help. Most of it is yeah. fluffy stuff and happy yeah. happy stuff, isn't it? Yeah, and I think we've got to change that. Like, I think it's really important that you can be real and honest mm. with some people, like with, with not, not necessarily with everyone, but with some people. And that's, so that's why I try and role model that. And, and like when I do this ride... I'm, I'm going to try and post something every day and I'm going to post stuff when I have shitty days and I'm going to say I had a shitty day, I felt like crap, I wanted to go home because I want to be real. Cause I, um, yeah. Um, so. And what what's worked for you over the last few years as far as a routine goes or mental health practices that you lean on that you know have worked for you? Hamish, what, what's worked? Yeah, um... I mean, well, medication, like the way it was described to me was it's like it's a third medication, um, it's a third counselling and it's a third like lifestyle factors kind of thing. And and I am a firm believer in that kind of thing. Um, But yeah, so so do your counselling, work on what the underlying issues are. And then, but then take healthy lifestyle choices. So, so exercise, get enough sleep, social connection, um, eat healthy, don't drink too much alcohol. All those things that just generally support a healthy lifestyle um, are, are really important. Um, and 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 probably the biggest one that I found is actually social connection. Um, has, has probably had the biggest impact on me um, in the last two to three years. That I, I've I'm more social now. 
and I have people and I'm actually willing to call these people because I've been real and vulnerable with them and they've been real and vulnerable with me, that I am actually comfortable to say, sorry, excuse the French, um, I'm actually comfortable to pick up the phone to them and say, look, dude, I'm really struggling. Can I? Can we just chat? Um, mm. And, like, just just... The sense of relief and whatever just by being accepted by somebody and having somebody acknowledge what you're saying, it, like, you can't underestimate how, like, what a big, how amazing that is in my experience. Like, I, I had to do that on the weekend with a mate of mine because I, like, just something happened and I just felt, I, I, I actually, and it hasn't happened for a long time. I actually had suicidal ideation um, on the weekend, but I wasn't seriously going to do it. But, but so I called my mate and I told him that. And I said, look, I'm, I'm safe. But this is what I, I've been thinking about this because of this. And, and that actually made it better. Like I felt better after having that conversation and, and owning that kind of thing. Good for you. Hmm. Yeah, but it's a long journey. Like it's, um, yeah, it's only really in the last year that I've been comfortable reaching out to a few people and telling them I actually need help. And I'm, I'm almost 44, so I've spent 43 years not asking for help. And, not being, and it was because I didn't think, like, I didn't feel that I was worth helping. Um, and that's something that's really hard about depression. It's like you don't feel like you're worth helping. You Like, yeah, you, you're scared that, if you do ask from somebody for help, they might say no. Um, yeah. So. Yet we know, don't we, that being asked to help someone can be a, a, a gift for that person yeah. because there's yeah, nothing more rewarding for us yeah. as people to know that we've helped someone that we care about. Yeah, yeah. And but that's the problem. Like, logically, you know that mm. when you're in, in, in like, the other term I use is looking into the abyss. You know that when you're looking into the abyss logically, but that doesn't change how you feel. Like you still feel like you're worthless and you still feel that people or you're scared that people will say no and that becomes a barrier to actually asking for help. So we, we need to normalise that. Well, hey, Michelle, I, I congratulate you on being vulnerable and being brave and being courageous in not only your own life but looking to help others. How can we follow your progress later this year? How can people stay in touch with what you're doing? Yeah, so um, so I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, so if, if you're on um, LinkedIn, um, just follow me on LinkedIn. So it's Hamish Keston, K-E-S-T-O-N. And then if you're wanting to support um, my ride, um, so if you go to the Mental Health Foundation of New Zealand website or just type in mental health, Hamish Keston, it should come up, my fundraising page should come up as the second link um, on Google in there. And and I do, I try and post something once a month. When I'm actually cycling, I'm going to try and post mm. some photos and commentary every day. So, um, yeah. Well, and, all of the... And, all... Oh, sorry, you go. No, I was just about to wish you all the very best and to thank you so yeah. much for joining us today. Is there anything yeah, else you no, want to say? You. Yeah, I, I guess the one other thing is, like, I... like. I want to, I want to make an impact and help people. So, so if there's any organisations there that, like, and I'm not a professional or anything, but like, um, if there's any organisations that want somebody to come and talk to their staff about mental health, um, and and um, and hear about my journey, I'm more than happy to do that either via Zoom or in person. So, um, so contact me via LinkedIn if, if anyone's interested in that as well.
man who doesn't like a bit of Elton I'm still standing take it from us let's talk to Claire Robbie who is the founder of No Beers Who Cares an organization trying to shift attitudes around how and why we drink but also to show people it is possible to have a good time without having to lean in on the booze Uh, Claire I've been looking forward to having a chat with you on our program thank you so much for joining us how are you doing I'm doing pretty well a little sleep deprived because I've got a new baby but you know Pushing through it. <laughs> yes, getting there. Well, look, you're laughing. I can hear that you're laughing. That's that's the that's the main thing, isn't it? After after a newborn has kind of rocked your world. <laughs> we wanted to we wanted to talk to you about the great work that you've been doing now for the last few years with No Beers Who Cares. For those of us that aren't familiar with the work, aren't familiar with what you're doing, what is it? So five and a half years ago, I decided to stop drinking for a year. And it's actually the the second time, that was the second time that I decided to stop drinking. The first time lasted a couple of years. The first time I did it, I was really lonely, really, really lonely. I had to like find a whole new circle of friends. Uh, I had to figure out how to socialize sober. I had to learn how to go to events and choose a tonic water instead of a wine. And so when I decided to give up drinking for this year, um, I knew I needed a crew of people to do it with. And so on the 1st of January, I think it was 2017 or 2016, can't even remember now, I did a little Facebook post, told people what I was going to do because I'm really big on accountability. Public accountability works really well for me. Told people that I was going to give up drinking for a year and just sort of asked, does anyone want to do it with me? And I had in that on that day 80 responses from people saying, yes, I'll do it with you. And so I thought, oh, there's, there's something in this. And so... It was actually uh, the, the, my boyfriend at the time said, you should call this No Beers Who Cares. And we decided to meet once a month at a local bar in Auckland. Most of these people were based in Auckland. And practice socializing without alcohol in a place where you usually would have a drink, which um, for most of us was kind of the trickiest thing to navigate, learning how to be comfortable going to these, you know, social situations and not having that comfort of the that layer of softness that alcohol gives you. So we started meeting at bars and at first it was, I think the first time we met, it was about 25 people. Those events grew to like 200 people. We used to have speakers. Um, we have a Facebook group, which is full of people just supporting each other, making a different choice, making this different choice to exist in a world, not necessarily forever, but maybe for a period of time, you want to give up drinking and just give your poor old liver a break Mm. for a month or two. Um, So supporting each other through this process, because it is really tricky. You don't have to be an alcoholic to find it really hard to stop drinking. You can be a really moderate drinker. In fact, I think, uh, not that that's even harder, but 
if you really can't see the detrimental effects, you know, if they're not super tangible or you haven't had a rock bottom or you haven't had some kind of serious illness from alcohol, it can be really easy to keep drinking because the human body is amazing and it can tolerate a lot of nonsense um, and not to be a fear mongerer, but even one or two drinks every single day has a really bad effect on every single system in your body. So um, it is wonderful to, to give it a break for a period of time. And that's how Nobias Who Cares started. And, and from that, eventually I developed a program called The Reset, which is a 90-day program helping people reset their relationship with alcohol. Uh, and it's all based on, it's based on science. It's based on a lot of the programs that I have read about and studied it's based on my experience as a meditation mm. teacher. Meditation's been a huge part of my process. Um, and the 90 days is really crucial. Like 90 days is a really good chunk of time to start mm. to recondition habits. So after that 90 days, if you can if you can stay alcohol-free for 90 days and still go and do the things that you would usually do, um, you know, socialize with your mates, go out, get out there without having a drink, then every single time you make a different decision, a different part of your brain has to, to fire. <clears throat> I, I read a book last year called The Alcohol Experiment by Annie Grace, oh, which, yeah, yeah. Which, which was designed to try and stay off alcohol as best as I could for 30 days. I ended up doing 40, and I found in that time that the less I had, the less I wanted, mm. and... I've been drinking again since then, just a few beers here and there. That's pretty much all I have. But I I know what you're saying, that even two, three, four, if I have four beers on a Friday night, more likely to want to feel like a beer on a Saturday, even if I don't feel very good, even if I'm like, man, you don't actually really want a beer. So I think is the term for that grey area drinking, where it's it's the little two guys on the shoulder, one's battling, one's telling you, no, you don't want this. The other one's saying, oh, it's okay. You'll probably be all right with it. And I have found that quite challenging to be honest and is that like is my story the kind of story that you would probably run into quite regularly yeah that's your story is more people than not story right perfectly frank like even the statistics so in in the documentary they talked about problematic drinking and and patty gow's documentary that was just on last week they talked about problem drinking and i i genuinely believe it's way higher than i think it was um one in five was it one in five problem drinkers in our country, I genuinely think it is way, way, way higher than that because alcohol is just so insidious. It's absolutely everywhere and we've been conditioned from teenagehood to use it in a way that means we haven't had to deal with discomfort. And so your example is perfect. When you feel a bit shitty and dusty the next day, your nervous system knows because you programmed, I don't know, when did you start drinking? Oh, gee, 16, so 30, 28, yeah. 29 years ago. So 29 years of you, your nervous system recognising, oh, if I feel like this, if I do this, I feel better. And it's so easy. It mm. literally is open the can, drink. And the human body is programmed to find these shortcuts to nervous system regulation. The unfortunate thing is it's actually not regulating your nervous system. It's doing the complete opposite but not many of us grew up with parents role modeling uh, healthier ways to regulate our nervous system, you know, like I don't, <laughs> teaching us breathwork exercises or... Never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You imagine your dad sitting down, okay, son, when you feel like this, let's do a... Let's do a no, it, was, it, was a sip out of, it was a sip out of the top of his beer after the lawns were done. Yeah. You know? See, his, and, and the reward system, so... yeah. Humans are wired for reward, and we grow up watching our parents reward themselves and everyone around us rewarding themselves after mowing the lawns, after a long week at work, um, all these little signals to the brain. Like, we're so easily conditioned and trained. Um, we're like little puppies being trained. And so to untra- it's completely possible to untrain. Like, I'm literally proof. Like, my drinking was ridiculous absolutely ridiculous i drank to relax i drank to have fun i drank you know all the reasons that that people drink um and i don't have a good off switch you know once i've had two 
it's very hard for me to well it was back then I have no idea what it'd be like now not I don't want to find out but um I genuinely if you'd have told me even seven even five years ago when I stopped that I'd probably never drink again I would never have believed that that was possible for me but slowly using the tools that I've learned from amazing teachers and a lot of self-experimentation I have unlearned that habit yeah I watched the Paddy Gower booze doco last week and he he was stressing the point that for him it was normal and I'm the same age as Paddy I actually know Paddy him and I go a little bit uh, you know, once upon a time, I, him and I would have had a few beers together a little while ago. And I thought, yeah, man, like when we were growing up, you were abnormal if you weren't a drinker. And we were 17, 18, still had zits on our face. You were abnormal if you weren't drinking. So there was an inherent peer pressure there, man, to you better have a six pack of beers with you or you're a loser. So how do young, how, how do, you, do you, the young people in our community battle with that and are you finding that the pressure now for youngsters is not quite as bad as it was Uh, are we seeing improvements yeah well it is um definitely improving i reckon there's a lot of hope for the younger generation when it comes to alcohol and and drugs for sure because it definitely peer pressure plays a massive part in it and social conditioning you know my boyfriend um he's never been a drinker he um he hasn't touched alcohol in 15 years, but for him it was really easy not to. Like he's, he's only been drunk a handful of times and it just wasn't for him because he grew up in the straight edge scene. And so in that scene, it's not cool to drink or do drugs. So he has a completely different mindset and attitude towards alcohol. But for me, it was com- it was so normal, exactly like Patty said. Like it was... I remember looking at people who didn't drink or, you know, people came to parties and they're like, no, no, I don't drink. And I thought they were such weirdos. So it is amazing how much the environment you're in shapes, you know, your perception. And these days, from what, it's anecdotally, but from what I've heard with the younger generation, they're not as socially experimental in real life as we were, they're actually on their devices a whole lot more. Everything's, um, you know, a bit more virtual. And so they're not having the experiences that we had with booze, which does actually open up a whole different can of (laughs) worms when it comes to social anxiety and that kind of thing, when you're not being socialised. But from what um, the statistics show us, teenagers are definitely drinking differently so that is wonderful because it just it just creates so much havoc further down the track in the health system mental health you know I had no idea like I remember when I first gave up drinking so that two-year period in Los Angeles I was a mess I was an emotional mess I, I, I was depressed I had terrible anxiety I had no idea that doing drugs and drinking affected my mental health I had zero idea and that's how long ago is that that's only 13 years ago but it just wasn't talked about and so kids these days are definitely aware that drugs and alcohol affect their mental health but in saying that the knowledge that something is bad for you because I think we all know on some level that alcohol is bad for us the knowledge that something's bad for us doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be able to change our behavior. Unfortunately, for a lot of people, it can take, like Patty spoke about on the documentary, like he wanted to hear something so terrible that it meant he couldn't drink again. A lot of us need that ultimatum almost. Um, it's much harder to change your behavior <laughs> if you if it hasn't got really, really, really serious. <laughs> Yeah, and, and my job as a health coach, I've I've coached some some men who I'm I'm fairly certain know that alcohol is no good for them. They would be healthier, they'd be happier without a relationship with it. I'm pretty sure that they've tried really hard to knock it on the head. But if it was so simple as to say this thing is no good yeah. for me, I need to make changes and I will. But the reality is with something as addictive and 
as alcohol, but also I think I like what you've explained to us too today about the neurological relationship that gets formed, the, these, this neuroplasticity in the brain where we're just treading the same path for, for 30, 40 years and we don't know any other way to do it. It's really challenging for these guys and, and for women too, of course, to go, I'm going to go without it and it starts today. Like, that's an oh, enormous so, step. Yeah, it's so hard. And there's, there's, um, this is a really helpful little thing that you can do with these people, yeah? So one of the things, not one of the things, is it's multi, multifaceted and layered. You can ask yourself or the people you work with, what is alcohol giving you? Mm. And people will say the same things, basically. They say it's giving me um, mental reprieve. It's giving me a break. It's giving me relaxation. It's giving me connection. Um, it's giving me excitement. It gives me reward. It gives me something to look forward to. And the flip side of that is you can ask, okay, but what is it taking away? And the list there is endless. Time, health, energy, finances, relationships, et cetera, et cetera, um, which become more and more valuable the older you get too. And so the thing that needs to be addressed with, okay, what is alcohol giving me? Because those things, connection, relaxation, they're all things that we need as a human. You know, they're things that we need. We just don't know how to get them another way. And so the real searching begins there in finding ways to connect and relax and get excited and feel passionate, um, to feel rewarded and it takes exploration. It takes like starting to really get to know yourself to find other ways to get those sensations. Because at the end of the day, those are just feelings. Reward is a feeling. Connection is a feeling, et cetera, et cetera. And if you can start to find ways to get those feelings, to get that sense of connection, et cetera, et cetera, other than alcohol, then you will start to not only live, and I, this word's so annoying, live a more authentic life. <laughs> but um, there's adventure there. There's like all these different layers of life and your life experience that you can start to explore. Maybe there's things that you haven't tried. Maybe there's new friends to be found um, just by asking yourself these questions. But the next step is actually... And that's when things start to feel really uncomfortable. Like we have to be brave to try and make some new friends as adults, you know, like making a new friend as an adult can be a really, it's like, it's like um, dating again, almost, you know, you have to put effort in, even contemplating what am I interested in? Because so many people drink because they're bored, which blows my mind in this amazing world we live in with all these opportunities and things out there that we can experiment with and try like how can you be bored um but we then we have to go right inside and go okay what how can how can i be bored in this life how can i be bored and we may have to confront some stuff you know to tackle that aspect of of you know our existence and so Taking away the alcohol for me um, was incredibly confronting. I had to really address social anxiety. I had to address um, a lot of the shortcuts I was taking in my life. And when I didn't have the hangovers, when I didn't have all that time wasted thinking about those, going out drinking, being hungover in the weekend, an interesting thing happened in that, was that I realized I had less of an excuse not to live up to my potential. And that's terrifying. You know, that is freaking terrifying. Okay, I'm not drinking anymore, so I can't use the hangover as an excuse. Whew, I might actually have to get up and go for that run. <laughs> it's that accountability that you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you about being prepared for, for people, for those of us that maybe are wrestling 
with their relationship with alcohol and are wanting to make some changes, but but you know sometimes we we feel that pressure and we feel that level of expectation, and we've got relationships with people that are purely based around alcohol, and if you don't have a drink in your hand, they will think that this. How do we prepare ourselves to be brave and bold and courageous yeah. and just go out there and have a great night with our friends and not be a slave to the beers? Yeah, okay, that is that is a great question, and there are ways you can be prepared. I think you do have to be prepared, though, for the first, like, for example, the first time you go for a wedding, it may not be as <laughs> exciting as uh, you're hoping it's going to be. Like, the firsts can be really challenging. But what I tell people when, so people come in to do the reset with me and they, we have this initial consult and I'm like, okay, we're going to start today. This is it. If you want to do this with me, we start today. And a lot of them are like, oh, oh eh, hang on. <laughs> hang on it's the weekend or I've got, it's my 30th or whatever excuse pops into their head. But I say, if you really want to do this, we start now. So you're going to go home. You're going to get rid of all the alcohol in your house, which can be tricky if your partner wants to drink still. So if you have a thoughtful partner, they won't mind, I don't know, hiding their booze from you, just putting it somewhere you can't see. And, because willpower can only get you so far. If you've had a really shit day at work or something terrible has happened mm. and you open your fridge and you see that corona, it just makes it so much easier if that corona's not there. So you get rid of all the alcohol and you go to the supermarket and you buy teas, you buy drinks that you want to drink. You fill your fridge up with alternatives. Um, <clears throat> Accountability-wise, tell, maybe tell a couple of people that you're doing this, people that you know will support you. Interestingly, the people who you think are going to support you may not sometimes, and sometimes the people who you think are going to be really judgmental at this actually step up and are amazing. So telling people isn't absolutely crucial because at the end of the day, the buck stops with you, you know, you have to be accountable to yourself. There are so many times over the years where I could secretly have had a drink, you know, but I just wouldn't do that to myself. I, I, I couldn't do it. So um, also making a time commitment, and I think a month is great, but I think three months is better. The first month can be not too tricky for a lot of people and – you know, you sort of know the end is in sight. Two weeks in, you're halfway through. Um, and you don't really see the physical benefits until around the end of the second month. So your liver takes a while to detox, even if you're not a super heavy drinker. Um, and even for many, many people, because all of a sudden you're starting to feel a lot more, you can actually feel quite tired for the first month or two. Like there's sort of a... You're not just detoxifying your liver, you're detoxifying emotions, you're detoxifying different habits and the trickle-down effect that it has on your life. So some people can feel really tired, some people feel really energized. It really depends on um, the person. But And at first, you may not want to go to bars and events. You may just want to stay home and just detox, maybe exercise a little more regularly, do some smaller steps. And then maybe in the second month, you start going out and exploring what it's like to go to dinner and have a soda, to go to a bar, et cetera, et cetera, and have, you know, an alternative. And you also have to come to terms with the fact that it's not going to be comfortable. It is not going to be comfortable. You probably will feel bored. Um, there's a period of time where a lot of people have the sense of like, is this it? Is this it? Oh my gosh. And it's, and I remember it vividly like, Oh, okay. Because the highs and the lows have sort of gone, like you don't have these extreme highs that come with drinking and then the lows, everything stabilizes. And for many of us, that stability feels really dull <laughs> mm. until it doesn't. And then a beautiful thing happens when you're more present in your life. So when you drink, 
you immediately lose consciousness and you're not present in your life anymore. So when you stop drinking, uh, you're quite literally present to every moment. And so life becomes richer and deeper and fuller just as a byproduct of, of not drinking. But you do have to get through this part of like, huh? Is this, is this it? Huh? <laughs> it's a really weird, it's a really weird thing to describe. But then when you pop out of that, um, when you're present in your life all the time, you pick up all the nuances and the details and you just appreciate things a whole lot more, even the stuff that's not so good. I think what I've learned is you can't feel the good without feeling the bad. You know, if you're numbing anything, you're numbing the good and the bad. That is Claire Robbie on Take It From Us. Uh, there is the support group on Facebook, No Beers Who Cares. Go and search that on Facebook. They've got the support group, and you can probably reach out and touch base with Claire as well. That was really nice of her to join us on our program today to talk about this issue around, you know, our drinking, societal sort of attitudes and views to alcohol. It's certainly thought-provoking for me. It makes me think about what I could do better, and if you're in the same boat as me, Take a breath and we can always try and make some improvements as best we can. But for what it's worth, no bears, who cares? You can jump onto Facebook and uh, join the support group if that's what you need. Karen, I hope you've had a great week. Our Sheldon shout-out for this week is something a little different, isn't it? Yes, well, I think um, we've got Matariki coming up this weekend, which is um, a fantastic opportunity for everyone to get together with family and friends and just spend some time. I think it's about spending time with family and friends, maybe having something to eat and enjoying each other's company and just thinking about the good things you've got in your life. It's a chance to, you know, talk to each other, listen to each other and um, think about what's coming up for the future as well and, and maybe make some good plans. So we'll be spending this in Christchurch with um, Grace, who's having a 21st and uh, All right. lots of friends and, and family there. So I'm really looking forward to this very first Matariki is a, a public holiday. Yeah, there's a real buzz around it. It feels very exciting and a very happy 21st birthday to Grace. Hope you have a great weekend, Karen, and thanks so much for producing our program. Uh, it'll be another day off school for my daughter, so she'll be stoked about that and uh, we'll have a family weekend as well. So thanks to Karen for looking after us today. Thanks to Hamish and also to Claire for joining our program. Look after yourselves. Enjoy the long weekend. Let's all be together and we will rejoin our conversation on Take It From Us next week. You've been listening to Take It From Us with host Kent Johns, produced by Karen Murphy, executive producer Andrew Dewhurst, made with the real stories and voices from our community. And for that, we thank you. For more information on anything you've heard on today's show or for direction on where to seek further advice or assistance, visit our Facebook page, Take It From Us. Scott.